And we got a little break from the minor prophets last week as we studied the prophecies fulfilled in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now we're going to go back and get another dose of the minor prophets. And, of course, Joel is one of those unusual uh, little books, three chapters long, and, and yet Joel speaks of things that have yet to happen, things that have happened, and things that would happen even uh, in his lifetime. And, and so, uh, as I researched a little bit about the timing uh, of the prophet Joel, they said, well, nobody knows for sure. And to prove that, the writer of the article said most people say that he was about the 8th century, be about 700 years before Christ or so. Um, but some have put him here and some say he's here and some put him uh, before the captivity, some put him after the captivity. And when you have no consensus, you can be assured of one thing. Nobody knows. Uh, and so, yet, Joel foretells lots, uh, several things he dealt with. In fact, uh, maybe we'll just touch on this. The last point is specific events. The day of the Lord, which has yet to be fulfilled. Uh, we believe the day of the Lord begins with the rapture, goes through the tribulation period, and, and is finally consummated at the end uh, of the millennial kingdom. Uh, you talk about the day, a day with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Well, according to the prophecies as we understand them, the day of the Lord is roughly a thousand and seven years and could start today. We don't know when the Lord will come back. Yet Joel uses that term. One of the reasons why we use that term, the day of the Lord, is because of the prophet Joel. He foretold of what happened on the day of Pentecost. In fact, Peter quoted his prophecy and said, this prophecy is fulfilled here this day. And yet he speaks of the battle of Armageddon, which is the end event of the tribulation period, the last great confrontation well, I shouldn't say the last great, but uh, uh, as far as we are concerned, uh, of God and man, of course, there will be one last battle at the end of the millennial kingdom, but that one won't uh, last but just a moment. And Joel talks about all these things, and yet he speaks of things that are happening today. And there's just some what we call uh, super statements in the book of Joel. There's just some of those things that that just reach out and, and grab your attention. Uh, look with me, chapter 2 and verse 13. It says, And rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God. Now, that's just an incredible statement, is it not? All through the Bible you read about people when they get upset they rend their garments. That that was just a sign of mourning, a sign that's how they uh, displayed great personal emotional distress. Aren't you glad that uh, we, we do things a little differently? Amen? I mean, that could get expensive, ripping up your suit coat every time you got really upset. And, and uh, the... Uh, 
But that was the traditional, and, and Joel puts a personal application. He says, don't rend your garment. Rend your heart. And uh, look with me in chapter 3. Verse 14 says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And, and I mean, all of those things are just kind of, and lots more, are, are stuffed in this little book, the prophecy of Joel. And all we know about Joel was... Verse 1, we'll dig in and start working our way through. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So, we have this guy named Pethuel. Somebody says, who's he? Don't know. He had a son named Joel. Who's he? The guy that wrote the book. Uh, that's all we know. And, and anybody that tells you they know more is making it up. But Joel's prophecy... As uh, with the other minor prophets, he's certainly keeping uh, in, in uh, overall context of the minor prophets, he promises God's great judgment upon Israel and, and upon the surrounding nations as we get through. But he starts in verse 2 by saying, Hear this, ye old men. And give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? So, he says, I want you to listen. I want you to pay attention, old men, and all the inhabitants of the land. This is not going to be something that you're going to say, in my grandfather's day. He says, it's not going to be like anything that's ever happened in the past. Now look at verse 3. He says, Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. Okay, what he's saying here very simply is, this hasn't happened in the past. And it's never going to happen in the future again. What I am talking about is going to be so catastrophic it is going to be so far-reaching that this is a once-in-history event. And, of course, if we understand Joel correctly, he would certainly be properly describing the Battle of Armageddon there. That is something uh, that has been spoken of every generation since it was prophesied and. And they make movies about it. And they write novels based on what might happen. And man tries to use his, his best imagination in all of these things, trying to make sense or trying to recreate these events. And uh, let me tell you, the events of, of what Joel is speaking of here are without parallel and without comparison and then he describes, that which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten. And that which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten. And that which the canker worm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. 
and uh, people get all wound up on this and, and you look these things up. A locust, of course, we're familiar with the locust, modern day grasshopper. Uh, they can come in in a swarm and just make everything green disappear in a matter of moments. Uh, it's like uh, angry piranhas in a bowl with hamburger in there. I mean, it just, the water boils and everything disappears. Uh, the, the ground is just covered, and when they get up and move, there's nothing but brown and parched earth where they're left. And some have concluded that uh, these are basically uh, different uh, parts or different times in the development of the locust that the palmer worm is the larva and uh, then the canker worm is the next step in the, uh, the locust, and then the caterpillar. And the thing is, in Bible and in prophecy, when God gets poetic, sometimes he repeats a little bit, but if it's talking about all the life cycle here, the, the important thing for us to take note of is, see, when you have the initial plague of locusts move in, that's usually not the worst part. Because before the locusts move on, they will often plant the next generation in the soil where they've just eaten everything down. And next year, as you get everything ready to grow the next cycle of crops then the second generation hatches out. And that thing can repeat itself to a point to where the land becomes completely barren and nothing will ever grow again. Now, we, we have uh, modern-day pesticides and things, and we, we often don't hear of locust swarms. I read in one book... Uh, the last locust swarm that they had record of in the land of Israel was in 1915. And the locusts came in and just destroyed every tree and every plant and everything in the, and parts of the land of Israel. And that was in there. But let's, let's just read on a little bit here. Awake ye drunkards and weep and howl all ye drinkers of wine because of the new wine for it is cut off for your mouth. Look at verse 6. For a nation is come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Now, look what it says in verse 6 and compare that with verse 4. It says, total, utter destruction by the locust and its generations. And then in verse 6, he says, a nation. And so, what we uh, simply have here is God, of course, is speaking about the same thing. There's nothing in the text that would tell us it was something different. But you read through the book of Judges, and what did the... 
Midianites and the Amorites at a different time, what did they do? Just as the locusts, they destroyed everything. And they kept coming back and redestroying. And, and, and their impoverishment sometimes would last 10 years and 20 years before the children of Israel would finally repent and turn and cry unto the Lord. And, and Joel was saying, unlike what has happened in the past, he said, the judgment that is coming is going to be something that will be spoken, that you should speak about to past generations. There's nothing in the past that compares about it. There's nothing in the future. There's not going to be any food. There is going to be complete uh, devouring of everything in the land. Look at chapter 2 uh, here. And, and look with me in verse 3. It says, A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them as a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of, the, of mountains shall they leap. Like the noise of flame of fire that devoureth the stubble as a strong people set in battle array before their face, the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march everyone on his ways. They shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk everyone in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city, and they shall run upon the wall, and they shall climb upon the houses, and they shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very strong, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Now, this is talking about God's judgment. Now, there have been some times in history where things like this have come pretty close to happening. How many remember Genghis Khan and the Mongolian hordes? Uh, people often read this passage when they described the utter destruction that they brought uh, upon their enemies. And, and it's, a, it's an amazing story how a man that could really neither read nor write ruled an empire vaster than that of Rome and Greece and Babylon combined. I mean, it, it, it's, it's an amazing part of history. And no one stood before them. In fact, the, the Pope uh, sent emissaries to the great Khan and pleaded that he would not destroy them because he was so afraid. Now, you've got to remember, this was in the um, 12 and 1300s. All the way from Rome to Mongolia. And back. 
you know, we're, we're not as smart as we think we are. And yet, that's really not, that, if, if anything, that would be just a picture of what is being spoken about here in the book of Joel. God's judgment is severe. You hear that in every one of the minor prophets. And God commands, as we look through, what I've tried to do is just uh, cut up the book of Joel almost by its topics that it covers. And, and what we're going to do next is just look at God's command. God said, this is my judgment that's coming. There's never been anything like it. There's never going to be anything like it again. It is going to be complete. It is going to be total. And I want you to mourn. He starts in, in verse 5. He says, Awake ye drunkards and weep, and how all ye drinkers of wine. And here's the reason. Because the new wine is cut off from your mouth. There's not even going to be wine to taste, let alone to over-consume. And, and we don't have time tonight, but let's just... Uh, make sure that we understand that every time your Bible uses the word wine, it's not talking about alcoholic beverage. Uh, the, the Bible uses the word wine freely to represent anything that is the juice of the grape. And so, he's talking about uh, not only the drunkards, those that just sit there and consume until they're sick and they're ill and all of these things. But, but you also have uh, the um, higher echelons of society in that. I never have understood, nor, nor do I want to, a, a wine tasting contest. How many of you know what they do at a wine tasting? Everybody has their own personal bucket. Did you know that? Because as you take the wine in your mouth and taste it, you have to spit it out. Because if you swallowed it, you'd be so snockered, you wouldn't be able to taste after three or four times. And and, uh, literally, that's what they tell me. I've never been to one of those things, but that sounds disgusting to me. You're sitting there sloshing around, spit it out. I mean, that's what they do with tobacco juice, amen? Uh, it's, It's ridiculous. And yet, they call themselves the... Creme de la creme, the higher points of society. We know how to spit well. I'm sorry, a little sarcasm there. But I want you to understand something as God is calling to judgment here, calling to weep and to mourn. He's saying, listen, you drunkards laying in the gutter and you people that sit in your high halls He said, there's not going to be anything left for any of you. You better get on your knees and weep before God. The next one he calls to weeping in verse 10 of chapter 1 is the land itself. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 1 verse 10 says, The field is wasted, the land mourneth, for the corn is wasted, and the new wine is dried up, and the um, the oil languisheth. He is calling the actual land. And and that has been repeated all through history. When some great catastrophe happens, people will, somebody will sit down and write a poem 
that the trees weep or the, the, the mountains weep or the land mourns. And, and God calls the land to mourn. And then he talks to the people who grow the crops. The husbandmen, the vine dressers. The husbandman was the farmer. Uh, it's interesting the word that it uses there. Husband is someone that is married. A husbandman is a man that is married to the land. And if you've ever met a real farmer, uh, there is a relationship between the farmer and his land. There's a love there. there there's a connection. And, and uh, God meant that connection to be. And He calls them to weep because there's not going to be any crops grown. There's not going to be any harvest either from the vine or from the, uh, 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 from the plants that are in, in the ground. If you skip down to verse 17, it says, The seed is rotten under their clods. The garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. And uh, then we go to verse 13. And it says, Gird yourselves and lament Ye priest, how, ye ministers of the altar, come, lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholding from the house of your God. It says the judgment that is coming is going to be so little that there's not even going to be enough to make an offering to God. And he calls the priest to mourning. And then even the animals of the field, because there's no, in verses 18 through 20, because there's no food and there's no water. Well, as always, when God pronounces judgment, He pronounces a solution. In judgment, there is mercy. God is looking for an excuse to forgive sins. God will take any reason, as long as it's honest, to forgive you of your sins. Because how can He do that? Well, it's very simple. The price for sins has been paid by Jesus Christ. And so God will accept from us the simplest repentance, the simplest turning. He will accept it and He will forgive us. Because that is the nature of God. You know, people get reading all the judgment and the things and they get depressed. All the Bible talks about is God doing things. Hey, uh, why don't you start doing the things that the Bible tells you to do and you'll find out that God is truly a God of love and a God of mercy. A God that is gracious. A God that is willing to forgive. Look at verse 14. It says, Sanctify ye a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And as the destruction from the Almighty, it shall come. God says, you want to get things straightened out? Sanctify fast. Stop doing the things that you need to do. That's what fasting is. 
It's taking something that you need to do that is a necessary part of life and giving it up so that for a period of time so that you can devote yourself to prayer and seeking God. Now somebody said, I'm going to fast. I'm not going to, I'm not going to watch my TV for a week. Excuse me. That doesn't qualify because that's not necessary to life. But you don't understand. No, I do. That's not fasting. Uh, You can fast food. Some people in the Bible fasted food and water for a short period of time. Other people uh, uh, went with Jesus on several occasions, went without sleep and prayed all the night through. Those are biblical examples of fasting. Sometimes uh, Daniel talked about a long fast of several days where he ate no pleasant meat. He, he was just doing simple uh, bread and water or, or just the base elements of, of the diet. No preparation time for the food. Uh, no uh, time spent on gathering or anything. Just eating enough to keep his strength up so that he could keep praying. These, these are the biblical things that, that you can fast. Don't say, I'm going to fast and give up my candy bars or give up my Starbucks. Uh, those, uh, no matter how much they feel like it, they're not necessary to life. Uh, but food and water and sleep are. In fact, you can go a lot longer without food and without water than you can without rest. Uh, God designed our bodies to need those things. And he says, sanctify a fast. And let's look over here in chapter 2 and verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. It says, therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart. Now, how many times have you heard that? How many of you knew that the Bible just said it that plain? That, that when you're saying turn to the Lord with all your heart, that it was actually already printed in the Bible. The Lord was the originator of that command. And he says, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will repent, return and repent, and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord. And give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? Now, do you get the recipe, the the pattern that God has set here? He, He tells us exactly how to pray and what to pray for. God says, my ear will be open to this kind of praying. God wants to show himself 
merciful. He wants people to recognize His great kindness. He he must be known as a God of judgment. Otherwise, He would become the old man upstairs of popular lore, uh, the old fuddy-duddy that sits in his rocking chair and goes, oh, that'll be okay. No, God waits. God is very patient. The events that are spoken of in the book of Joel, many of them have yet to be fulfilled. And Joel, if, if we just put him where tradition does, is somewhere around 700, 750 years before Jesus was born. Now, that's an awful long time ago. So, take your, according to our calendar, take your 2014 and add 700 more, 750 more to it. That's 2,765 years. God has yet to fulfill some of these things. But here's what He tells us to do. He says, rend your heart, not your garments. Turn with your whole heart. He, he says, get everyone from the little babies to the bride and the groom. Now, if there's anyone that shouldn't be disturbed by things, it's the bride and the groom. Especially as they're preparing for the wedding service. But how many times do you remember... The phrase in the Bible, they eat, they ate and drank and were married and given in marriage until the day the flood came and swept them away. It talks about Noah's flood. It uses that same terminology talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, God's judgment is real. And it says if we want to avert that, What we need to do is everybody has got to be involved in praying. There is nothing going on that is more important than getting a hold of God. That's what Joel is telling us. You say, what's the practical application of all that? Well, here's a practical application. We just had a wedding a couple weeks ago. Almost two weeks ago. And you know where we had the wedding? Right here in the church. You know what we did during the wedding? We had Brother Copes come in and preach the gospel during the wedding ceremony. You know why? Because what goes on in our church is more important. No no uh, uh, offense intended. But people getting saved, the gospel going forward is more important than getting married. Uh, In fact, without Jesus Christ and the testimony of Christ, you have no hope for a good marriage. Amen? And that's the same that is true of all of us. And that's why we encourage. I hope you never get tired or frustrated with the little children in the services. Uh, I hope and pray there's always a baby making a little bit of noise somewhere in this building. You know why? Because we want them all in church. And... We want everyone that is doing anything to understand that what goes on here is more important than what goes on out there. That's that's God's pattern. The priest, 
Now, the idea of the priest crying to God between the altar and the temple is simply this. In order for a priest to be there, he had to be sanctified and he had to be prepared to serve God the way he's supposed to be serving God. And part of his job is to cry out to God for mercy for the people, for the land in which we live. That's one of the reasons we have missionaries in. And they tell us of the land, of the place that God has called them, the place where they hope to go and, and to serve. That, that's a modern application of what is being spoken of here in the book of Joel. This is why we do these things. And then we come here to chapter 3. In verses 9 through 17, and this is the final showdown. Now look how God paints this through the prophecy of Joel. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come all ye heathen and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be weakened, wakened, I'm sorry, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Did anybody remember reading it in the book of Revelation? It's there. And it's talking about this very same battle. For the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon shall be darkened. How many of you remember reading that in the book of Revelation? As part of the vials and the uh, the the um, seal judgments and the uh, trumpet judgments that are coming. And it says they'll withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people, the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. You know what that promise is made in reference to? The new Jerusalem. So, 700 years, 750 years before Jesus was born, 850 some years before John wrote the book of Revelation, Joel describes with amazing accuracy, the things that are described in the book of Revelation at the end of the tribulation period. And this is what we mean by our Bible being in agreement and being one Bible and that there's no contradiction in it. There is no contradiction between the prophecies of Joel and those of John, the beloved disciple. And God is going to deal with man. He is going to deal with those who are willing to repent and come to Him. And He is going to deal with those who are going to try to stand against Him 
and the battle of Armageddon, but God is basically saying to this world, I dare you, come and fight with me. Prove your ability. And man is going to be defeated. The, the, it says the blood is going to come out of the winepress of the wrath of God, and it's going to fill that Jordan Valley five feet deep, 120 miles long. That's how big the armies are going to be at the battle of Armageddon. And when that's all done, it says in that day, there's going to be a river of life flowing out of Jerusalem. And it's going to heal the waters of the Dead Sea. God's going to change the geography of the land. And, and of course, we're bringing in many other prophecies. But it says that they're in the valley of decision. Of course, we have an application, do we not? We live in a world that's in the valley of decision. And every day they seem to make another decision that will lead them farther away from God and farther away from the truth. But I'll tell you what. God is full of blessings. Look with me to chapter 2. And verse 14 says, Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. And what's being said there is, God is challenging Israel, Turn to me with all your heart. And I'll give you what you need to worship me. God wants our worship. Skip down to verse 21, I believe it is, in your outline there. Yes. Look what it says. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, and the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. Verse 25, this is another one of those super phrases in the Bible in this book. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the cankerworm, and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty, and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dwelt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. These are the blessings that God promises amidst this horrendous story of God's great and terrible judgment. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, For behold, in those days and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Jerusalem, of Judah and Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. It says, uh, and you have to get the context here. Um, uh, let's, let's pick this up. Verse 4. 
It says, Yea, and what have ye to do with me, O Tyre and Zidon, and all the coast of Palestine? Will ye render me a recompense? And if ye recompense me swiftly and speedily, will I return your recompense upon your own head? Because ye have taken my silver and my gold and have carried in, have carried into your temples my goodly pleasant things. The children of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have ye sold unto the Grecians that ye might remove them far from their border. Behold, I will raise them out of the place whither ye have sold them and will return your recompense upon your own head and I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the children of Judah and they shall sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off, for the Lord hath spoken it. It talks about Israel being able to dwell in security in their land and not having to fear being driven out and being sold. And literally, uh, when the Roman armies came in, they scattered the Jewish people to the farthest reaches of their empire. In fact, way beyond. Uh, there is uh, evidence of a Hebrew um, community in China that dates back to shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem. And they have scrolls of the Hebrew people preserved in China that date back to the first century A.D. And these things happen. And God has regathered his people. And he will continue to do so. But look at the last verse. Last two verses. But Judah shall dwell forever in Jerusalem from generation to generation for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. These are the greatest of God's blessings. The forgiveness of sin. How many of you remember what he said about Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah? He said he filled Jerusalem with the innocent blood, and I will not purge it forever until Jerusalem is destroyed and the armies of Babylon came in. They didn't destroy the city the first time. They came in and took more people hostages and, and carried them out and left only the poor people of the land the second time. They weren't done yet, though. Because of the sins of Manasseh, Zedekiah rebelled against the king and he came in and laid Jerusalem even with the ground. He destroyed the temple. He destroyed everything. And this was Nebuchadnezzar that did all of this destruction in the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because God said, those things that Manasseh did, you're going to be judged for them no matter what. What's he say in the end of the book of Joel? He said, I'm going to cleanse that blood because I'm a God that forgives sins. Now, one more thing and we'll be done. I just want to get this. We've touched the battle of Armageddon, the day of the Lord. But I want you to look with me. Chapter 2, verse 28 through the end of the chapter. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions and also upon the servants and upon my, the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord has said. And in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Peter preached these verses on the day of Pentecost. Now, not everything in those verses has been fulfilled. The sun sun still shines. The moon still shines. We read in the book of Revelation. And during the tribulation period is where that part of the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. But God did pour His Spirit out on the day of Pentecost in a special new way. And people spoke with languages. And those languages are recorded in the book of Acts in chapter 2. And it happened again in Acts in chapter uh, 8 in, in Samaria. In Acts in chapter 10 with Cornelius. God used that phenomenon, that gift to prove that the Jews could be saved. Acts chapter 2. That the Samaritans could be saved. And that the Gentiles could be saved. If God could save a Roman soldier in the mind of a Jewish person, he could save anybody. And God proved that. You say, why don't you believe in speaking in tongues today? Because they prove nothing. We already know that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We don't need to reprove that. You know what we need to do? Is we need to take that message to the world in which we live. Somebody says, well, I don't believe the old, uh, the New Testament. I only believe the old. Well, take him to the book of Job. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. In your King James Bible says, shall be delivered. Delivered from what? Delivered from the wrath of God. In the New Testament, that's being saved. Amen? It's the same thing. In fact, Peter quoted it that way in Acts chapter 2 as he was quoting this passage. Helping us to understand that salvation does not come from offering sacrifice. God's blessing and forgiveness does not come from participating in the temple worship. It comes from a rent heart, not a rent garment. It comes from mourning and praying from a heart that has been wholly turned to the Lord God. It comes by calling upon the name of the Lord. That's the prophet Joel. So much. And I mean, uh, we just skimmed over the surface. We we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks in the book of Joel, but we, we got the main parts and... And you can take your outline home and you can study for weeks and weeks and weeks. Amen? And get all the things that we didn't get. And you ought to be able to go through and do some cross-referencing in there and read the book of Revelation and see how much of the book of Revelation is actually spoken about in the book of Joel. It's absolutely amazing. That's why I call Joel the timeless prophet. We really don't know when he was. And we don't know when all of the things that he prophesied are going to take place. But there's an awful lot 
that we can get from the book of Joel that we can do today. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Joel. We thank you for his prophecy, for using him as a recipient of your revelation. Lord, we ask that you would help us to take advantage of the message of Joel. To realize your judgment is real and it is coming. But Lord, that we would, by your grace, strive to be in the place of blessing. In the place of forgiveness. In the place where your kindness is shown to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Before we finish that prayer, we'll just keep our heads bowed. If you need to slip out and just talk to the Lord, the altar.